Well, while Joel tries to fix that, I'm going to go ahead and get started. I'll just, I'll just speak up. Uh, this is a quote by Blaise Pascal in his book, which is really thoughts, but it's usually left untranslated, so it's called Pensée. So if you want to impress all your philosophical friends, you say, oh, I have read Blaise Pascal's Pensée. Uh, he was a uh, French uh, Roman Catholic, almost Protestant because he was a Jansenist, uh, philosopher and mathematician, uh, and his thoughts is, is just that. It's a collection, sometimes organized and sometimes not, of a massive book on apologetics he was planning to write at some point, but he never did. So he said this, willing to appear openly to those who seek him with all their heart and to be hidden from those who flee from him with all their heart, God so regulates the knowledge of himself that he has given signs of himself visible to those who seek him and not to those who seek him not. There is enough light for those who only desire to see and enough obscurity for those who have a contrary disposition. So I picked poster boys for two of these positions. Uh, this is kind of summing up like what I did the first s several weeks, well, the, after the introduction with the arguments for God's existence, but it applies equally well to uh, what I'm going to be doing now because we're sort of changing approaches with this lesson. On the left is uh, Dr. Anthony Flew. He passed away 2008, 2009, I think maybe later. Uh, and on the right is Richard Dawkins. Uh, Anthony Flew was a well-known British philosopher. I mean, I knew him before his conversion to deism, whether he actually converted to Christianity is a, now a historical question that uh, should there be world enough in time and the world lasts. Scholars a hundred years from now will be debating the nature of his religious beliefs. Uh, they won't be debating the nature of Richard Dawkins' religious belief. He recently wrote a book, which I have not read, probably will not read, uh, basically atheism for children, um, uh, which, of course, he's entitled to do. I mean, we did Veggie Tales, so other people can do really bad religious material, too. Um, just kidding. Uh, no, I'm not. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Uh, although I did use one veggie tale uh, in one of my classes once, uh, on the Joshua and the Big Big Wall. That's actually pretty funny. So uh, Anthony Flew is well known for having uh, changed his mind based on the design argument. And at the time, of course, the atheist community was all up in arms and just said, well, he got old and feeble-minded, which is not the case because he wrote this book. Um, and Richard Dawkins, of course, doesn't believe any such thing. Richard Dawkins is, is famous, infamous, even in atheist circles, for not really knowing his philosophy, theology, or even science outside his field. And uh, Michael Ruse, who is an atheist philosopher of science, uh, said of this book, Richard Dawkins makes me embarrassed to be an atheist. He really did say that. It's a blurb on another book. So I think this just applies. I really think the arguments for God are cogent, compelling. They should make you admit, yeah, okay, there is a God. And then say, I have no intention of following him. 
But that's not what people do. Uh, James Sire, a well-known Christian philosopher and apologist, also, he wrote a book called uh, Why Do Good Arguments Fail? Uh, And it's a really good book. Uh, But there are lots of different reasons, psychological, even sociological and cultural uh, and moral. And so while I think, you may think, Uh, we all may think that these arguments are good and reasonable. Uh, Not everybody is going to accept them. Uh, I want to say, but that's okay. It's not really okay in the cosmic or spiritual sense, but it is okay that that people aren't going to agree with you. Because one of the things I'm trying to do here, rather than trying to convince skeptics, in addition to trying to convince skeptics, is to convince believers that what they are believing is indeed perfectly reasonable, that you have very good reasons, uh, not, not just a, a, a peculiar psyche or psychological or emotional or sociological reasons for believing Christianity. You should believe it because it is true and it's reasonable to believe that it's true. But we're switching from logical arguments to what might be called a preponderance of evidence arguments. In in a civil lawsuit, uh, the standard for a verdict is not beyond a reasonable doubt. It's a preponderance of the evidence. I remember this terminology because it applied in the O.J. Simpson situation. He was found not guilty in criminal court. We won't discuss that. but, uh, But in civil court, he was found responsible, and he was forced to pay, I think it was the Goldmans, I'm not sure who else, a large amount of money because uh, the jury found that a preponderance of evidence showed that he was, in fact, guilty. So the question is, are there enough facts and evidence to conclude that faith in the truth of the Bible is reasonable? Well, the short answer is yes, but the question is, how and why do you know that? So I'm going to start with the Bible is historically reliable. And uh, today I'm going to do the Old Testament. Uh, Old Testament studies, uh, both on the meaning but also on the reliability of it, is like a very deep and very wide river. And we're simply going to stand on the banks and I'm going to point out some of the things that float by. And that's about it. I have a couple of book recommendations at the end. So how do we know that the Bible is historically reliable? Well, we start with the reliability of the text. So when you read, uh, I, th- I think the version uh, in the bulletin was the NRSV. Is that correct? I think so, yes. And then there's the ESV, the uh, English Standard Version, NIV, New International Version, all kinds of English versions. Um, I'm not going to get into translation, but you can just be rest assured that any legitimate standard translation is translated well enough that you're actually reading what is in the original languages. But if we go back behind that, how do we know that the text that they're working from, and in the case of the Old Testament, it's the Masoretic text, which I'll get to in a minute. How do we know that that is even what it was when it was originally written. So we need to know how do we know the reliability of the text. And there's, there's more than four things, but the four key points 
that established the reliability of the text are the Jewish scribal tradition, uh, the status of the Masoretic text, the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, and textual criticism of the Old Testament. So the first thing about Jewish scribal tradition, this is a quote, I thought this was great, from, from the Talmud. I am not a Talmudic scholar, so I cannot tell you exactly the context of it. But this is a book by a well-known uh, Old Testament uh, textual critic by the name of Emanuel Tov in Scribal Practices and Approaches. Is he a, a, a rabbi uh, quoted in the Talmud is talking to his spiritual son about copying the text. And he says, my son, be careful because your work is the work of heaven. Should you admit even one letter or add even one letter, the whole world would be destroyed. And this sort of bespeaks the attitude that going back as far as we have records that the Jewish scribes had towards their mission of copying what they considered to be sacred scriptures from God. Uh, we can trace this back historically a little bit further, but it goes back to at least Ezra. Uh, there was a group uh, of men called the Sopharim, which I understand in Hebrew simply means counting or numbering, and that really makes sense based on some of the things they did to ensure accurate copying of the text. So they codified their tradition into what are called masera, which are traditions. For example, if they were copying a book, they would count every single consonant. Hebrew is a consonantal language. It's written only in consonants, which makes it interesting for translation. But And they would... They would count the middle letter, and they'd make these notes in the margins. They would, they would find the middle letter, and they would note that. Uh, and they would only be allowed to work from an original. They couldn't do it from memory. They couldn't do it from uh, dictation. And they were only allowed to do it like one letter at a time, and not uh, cat, but C, C, A, A, T, T. One letter at a time. And there were a lot of other traditions uh, about how they were to dress, how they were to prepare the parchment. Parchment is animal skins used to write on. And these traditions were preserved and continued by what are simply known as the proto-Masoretic scribes. Those were those before the group we know distinctly as the Masoretes uh, that, that, again, go all the way back to Ezra there was a proto-Masoretic phase one, which continued up to the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 AD, and then a proto-Masoretic phase two, which went from that time to about 600, 700 AD. And then you have the Masoretes, uh, who copied it during the late, uh, I mean, the, the early to late Middle Ages from about A.D. 700 to 1100, who copied the text in this very traditional, very careful fashion. So that's the first thing. You have a, a, a tradition of what we would today seriously call obsessive compulsive behavior in regards to what they were doing. Uh, because... I'm not obsessive-compulsive, I know this, because I don't think I can control the universe by, you know, rearranging my books. 
But obviously, they believe that they were preserving the world, metaphorically speaking, perhaps, by what they did. And so they were extremely careful to ensure that they copied the text accurately. The second thing we have is the Masoretic text itself. Um, Your Old Testament, my Old Testament, just about every English Old Testament is based on the Masoretic text. It's, this is the standard edition that both Jews and Christians alike use to make new translations of the Old Testament or the, for the Jews, the, the Hebrew Bible. And I'm going to pass that around. Hebrew is read from right to left. So the front of the book is the back of the book. So you need to go to the back of the book to get to the front of the book. I'm serious. Uh, You'll find all the front matters in Genesis starting in the back of the book, which again makes for interesting translation. I'm I'm not a Hebrew expert in the interest of full disclosure. I had to take enough at seminary to pass a proficiency examination, uh, and I did. And as they say, if you don't uh, use it, you lose it. So... So I'm not a Hebrew scholar. The, the Masoretic text, there are three main codexes. Uh, codex just means book form uh, that this is based on. Uh, the main one is the Leningrad Codex. The Leningrad Codex is the oldest complete Masoretic text. It goes back to about AD 1080. Uh, the second one is the Codex Chirensis. That's the earliest but it's partial. It's, it's the former and latter prophets, what we call historical books. Uh, the Hebrew Bible calls the former prophets, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, etc. That goes back to A.D. 95, 895. Uh, what's considered most authoritative is the Aleppo Codex, which used to be in Aleppo, Syria, but now it's in Jerusalem. And this goes back to about A.D. 920. And it's about 60% of the Bible. It's, it's missing significant parts. So most Masoretic texts are based on the Leningrad Codex, corrected occasionally by the Codex Chirensis and the Aleppo Codex. Uh, but that you're, when, when you look at that, the Hebrew uh, Bible that I'm passing around right there, that's basically the Leningrad Codex. Any questions so far? Because this is basically a guided tour. Yes. Those animal skin. Parchment, uh, officially, I know you can got parchment at Office Depot, but it's not really parchment, is prepared animal skins. So most of these, when writing started, um, I'm not even sure papyrus existed, but most of the uh, Hebrew texts that we have are recorded on on parchment, which is prepared animal skins, Um, which is good because papyrus is uh, rather degradable and uh, deteriorates a lot more quickly. Uh, The next... uh, Question. Yeah. Oh, they're written. We're talking about copies. The question is, is I'm, I'm already talking about A.D. Yes, prior to the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest copy of the Masoretic text was A.D. 895. And the oldest copy 
that is, is complete was the Leningrad Codex, which is 1008, didn't I say? So yeah, before that, you basically, the, the Masoretes, just trust us, we got it right. So the question was, well, did they get it right? And at some point, historically, uh, there was textual criticism before the Dead Sea Scrolls of the Hebrew text, but this didn't create the discipline, but let's say it created a renaissance of it. That's actually an advertisement for the Israel Museum. So if you should find yourself in Jerusalem, be sure to go to the Israel Museum and, and the museum, uh, the shrine of the book where they keep the Dead Sea Scrolls. I also have a short video clip that I'm going to skip over uh, showing the Kentucky connection to what they alluded to briefly uh, in that short video about high-tech ways in which they are recovering ancient manuscripts. I'll, I'll show that if I have time. I'll go back to it. But the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947 near a, a community called Qumran. Uh, that's Qumran community right here. This is along the bluffs above the Dead Sea. And starting here and then going on down, there were, I think, about 11 caves uh, that had these uh, uh, scripture jars, uh, scroll jars. Uh, and they found, depending on how you count the manuscripts, there's more than a thousand of them. And they go from about, they've been dated from about 250 BC to AD 70, to the destruction of of Herod's temple. Uh, and they, they contain every part of the Bible except the book of Esther, which is very interesting. Um, we could speculate on that. The book of Esther is the only book in the Old Testament that does not have the name of God in it. So maybe they thought that that was... Oh, this is, I'll come back to that. There is a very high-tech way that they're recovering uh, even burnt scrolls uh, that they're doing at the University of Kentucky. Um, this is the great Isaiah scroll. If we had internet, I could go very quickly to this. But you can, you can look at this online if you want to. Now, you can't look at all the Dead Sea Scrolls. Scholars can. But uh, the Israel, I think it's the Israel Museum has the great Isaiah scroll. I've highlighted on there, right there, Isaiah 53. That's Isaiah chapter 53. And you can go online to that website uh, if you like. And you can actually look at this close up. If you read Hebrew, you can read it. It's perfectly legible. Uh, if you don't uh, have Hebrew, they added this. I accessed this first like 10, 15 years ago. And since then, they've added translation. There's a word-for-word -word translation. And you can read that and compare it to your English translation and see how very close it comes. Uh, in this entire chapter, there is only one significant word that is altered from most English translations. And I'll, and I'll mention that uh, very briefly. In, in Isaiah 53, uh, I'll just pause there. In Isaiah 53, um, no, that's, I was about to use your phone to access my Bible. In Isaiah 53, there is a term used in 53.11. It is 
not in the older, it is not in the NASB, it is not in the ESV, but it is in the RSV. In 5311, and I'm reading this to introduce the idea of, on the last slide here of textual criticism. 5311, this is the song of the suffering servant. Out of the anguish of his soul, 5311, he shall see and be satisfied. If you have an ESV, you're going to see a footnote there and a marginal note that will say, Masoretic text, Dead Sea Scrolls, he shall see the light. That's because in the Isaiah scroll, the word light is added to that verse. Every modern translation will note that if they have any notes about the, the textual apparatus, that that is, that is an alternate reading. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see light and be satisfied. The ESV just has, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. I kind of think he shall see light and be satisfied is the correct reading, but I'm not going to argue. You got about half of the English translations that add that word and about half that don't. That's the one word in that entire chapter that may or may not be in the text. And you can see, in one sense, it adds useful information to the text, but if it's not there, it doesn't really detract too much from it. So when we talk about textual criticism, literally most of the things we're talking about correcting, if that's even the proper term, are about like that. Some of the variances are not even that significant. They're orthographic, that is, alterations in spelling, and not just misspellings. It's things like, we spell color C-O-L-O-R, and the British spell it C-O-L-O-U-R. If you read C-O-L-O-U-R, you know what the word means. Same thing with theater and theater, R-E versus E-R, and a great many of the variances are like that. So textual criticism is the science and craft of arriving at the original wording of the big biblical documents. For the Old Testament, this involves very minor changes in the Masoretic text, though they are, and I just showed you one of those. Some translations go with what the Dead Sea Scrolls say, and some go with what the Leningrad Codex says. Though they are 1,000 years apart, the text of Dead Sea Scrolls and the existing Masoretic text are amazingly similar, verifying the accuracy of the Jewish scribes over the centuries. It was almost like a, a single-blind experiment, well, maybe double-blind. So how are we going to ensure that these Masoretes get it right? I'll tell you what. Let's take a copy right now, about 250 B.C., and we'll, we'll bury it in the ground somewhere. And everybody will forget about it until 1947 A.D. And then after we let them do their stuff for, you know, those many thousands of years, we'll come back and we'll compare the two. And, and there have been estimates according percentages, which I'm a little leery of. You might have heard 99%, 95% of the text is like, uh, of the Dead Sea Scrolls is like the Masoretic text, that's probably not correct, and it's probably not the best idea to try and go with percentages. You can actually read the Isaiah scroll for yourself, and you can see the amazing similarity. 
Uh, you could read Isaiah 53.11 from the great Isaiah scroll and you would be told the same word of God as something that was copied for over a thousand years and came down to us in the Masoretic text. So, yeah, we can say that the text is reliable, but what about the history? We're talking about the content of it. Again, this is very deep and very wide, and uh, just we're on a bus tour, and I'm simply going to point out the window and say, look at this, look at that, look at that. Um, so first, and I'm going to go over three segments. So Genesis, right now we're talking about the reliability. Uh, this is everybody's favorite, um, uh, favorite book, particularly the first four chapters and particularly the first 11 chapters, too. Uh, you may have heard that the creation narrative is borrowed from or dependent on uh, other ancient Near Eastern, that's what A&E stands for, ancient Near Eastern uh, creation myths. But it's not. There is no dependence on or borrowing of mythology uh, it, unless it's the other way around. Because although we believe these stories go back further, uh, like the Enuma Lish, which is the Babylonian creation myth, the copies we have post-date at least the traditional dating of the Genesis narrative. So uh, this is K.A. Kitchen. This is a book that I will recommend now uh, on the reliability of the Old Testament. Uh, it, it's a big book. It says, Genesis 1.1 presents a calm, stately vista of creation of the cosmos by one supreme deity, untrammeled by complex mythologies or subplots, as compared to, say, the Enuma Lish, which is, it's a theomachy. Theomachy means a war of the gods. So Tiamat and Apsu were like the two mother-father gods who fathered all the other little gods, and all the little gods got upset and decided to fight with, with Tiamat uh, Tiamat was killed by Marduk, coincidentally the chief Babylonian god. <clears throat> and out of her battered, broken, bloody body, he takes half of it and he throws it up and it becomes the sky. And the other half, he throws it down and that becomes the earth. And out of her two dead eye sockets flow the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Uh, it's a lovely story for children of all ages. Uh, and you can read that uh, if, if you get a, you, you can get collections of ancient Near Eastern texts. It's not very long, uh, seven chapters, and, uh, which are only partial. Uh, my understanding of the Egyptian creation myth, it's about sex between the sky god and the earth god. Um, so you don't get any of that in Genesis. Uh, and there are some, again, similarities and parallels, but there is no dependence. Um, this, you may have seen, this is actually from uh, Logos Bible Software, which is probably the most used Bible software in the, in the country. Um, the ancient Hebrew conception of the universe, only it's no such thing. Uh, actually, I'll show you, this is the, the children's coloring page version. So if we believe this, um, we'd give the kids that, and then we'd look at this. This is a fanciful reconstruction, and I mean that literally, fanciful, uh, that came from 19th century, primarily German scholarship, 
which misinterprets the meaning of the word rakia, which is in Genesis 1-6, which is translated sometimes dome or vault. In the King James, it's translated firmament. Uh, in the ESV and the NIV, uh, old NIV, it's, it's translated expanse, which is correct. And it also takes literally, strangely enough, uh, phrases in, like in Genesis 7:11, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heaven were open. It takes what's meant to be expressive and figurative and it turns it into literal language. This is as far back as I can trace where this came from. So every time you see a version of this, this may be where it came from. I can't find anything earlier than this. This is from 1913, the ancient Hebrew conception of the universe. Now, I can't tell you what your average Israelite before Moses thought, and neither can anybody else, but it wouldn't make any difference. It's not what Genesis teaches. It's just not. So, so we don't have to worry about the conflict between that image and actual science. So the weeks and the days uh, of creation are analogical, not literal. Uh, they really aren't literal, uh, and I could go into the detail about why, but I'll just report what uh, C. John Collins, a well-known Old Testament scholar at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, he also has a degree from MIT, says these are God's work days and just how long they are does not matter to the act of communication. The audience understands them by way of their own experience of work and rest. Since this is an analogy, we should be cautious about too much literalism. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2 are not contradictory or distinct narratives. You may have heard this. Uh, the, the source hypothesis says it comes from two widely varying and even contradictory sources. That's not the case either. Genesis 2 elaborates the very brief narrative of chapter 1, verse 27, declaring that that what was presented as a single event in the first, uh, that should actually be pericope, not periscope. I believe that's autocorrect. Darn you, autocorrect. Actually was spread out over a length of time. A pericope is just a distinct section of scripture. That's all. It's not a periscope. So, uh, in the patriarchal stories, there are ancient tablets and other archaeological evidence from the ancient Near East showing that the patriarchal narratives in Genesis accurately reflect the social customs, commercial practices, legal contracts, and names of the Middle Bronze Age and no later. Uh, and there's two huge finds, one in an ancient city called Ebla, another one called Mari. They had city-states and small empires in the Middle East. This is the Ebla Library. All those are tablets that were found. This is a reconstruction of that library, and this is one of the tablets. Uh, there are people who can read these. I can't. This is cuneiform. This is really neat cuneiform, as in, you know, carefully arranged and probably uh, ancient uh, cuneiform expert or rejoice when they see something that neat. Uh, this is Mari. This is the, the Royal Archive at Mari. And this is a couple. Uh, these, on the other hand, look like somebody who was in a big hurry. Uh, and there were thousands of tablets. How many thousands? Oh, 20,000 tablets at Mari and about 10,000 tablets at Ebla. And what they show is that these customs, 
that we read about in the patriarchal stories are actually reflected in extra-biblical external evidence. So uh, Walter Kaiser in his short book says, while there is no direct external evidence supporting the existence of any one of the three patriarchs, the data does exist to demonstrate the fact that they are correctly located in the Middle Bronze Age. And the case for the genuineness of the patriarchal stories is strong indeed. Uh, the literary nature of the patriarchal stories most resembles ancient Near Eastern historical personal biographies rather than legends, fictional tales, or myths. Now, this is a conclusion, again, reached by Kitchen after a lengthy book. Uh, they're not simply folk tales uh, about anonymous characters. The Pharaoh's judgment would appear to be that a real historical family of a man named Terah once existed in around Ur, about 2000 BC. He and they moved on northward, northwestward, and his son Abraham and family then moved south into Canaan. He did a lengthy analysis, which he records in his book, analyzing royal histories, biographical texts, historical legends, fictional tales, and myths, and he concludes that a personal biography is the best literary fit. Okay, I can see by the clock on my watch that I'm running out of time, so I may, what time I got? Can I go to 11.45, Nick, or do I need to start now? All right. Um, Extra, in the monarchical period, the extra-biblical inscriptions verify much of the chronology of the kings of Israel and Judah. Again, a whirlwind tour. This is called the Tel Dan Stela, which was found in northern Israel. It's, it's now at the Israel Museum. Right there on the Stela, this is about an assassination by an unnamed individual who killed Jehoram, the son of Ahab, uh, and second king... Um, Second Kings in the Bible mentions the son of uh, King Ahab by his Phoenician wife Jezebel. This is the first extra-biblical reference to David's kingdom, or to David's reign, the Davidic, the house of David. This is the Misha Stila, also called the Moabite Stone. Uh, this is found in 1868 in what would have been biblical Moab. Uh, records the words of Misha, king of Moab. He celebrates his re revolt from Israel uh, during the reign of one of the descendants of Omri, king of Israel. And this is recorded also in 2 Kings chapter 3. This is the black obelisk of Shalmaneser III. I think this is at the British Museum. Well, I think it is, but I don't have notes on it. There, the second panel from the top right there shows this. This uh, shows Jehu, king of Israel, paying tribute to the Assyrian king Shalmaneser when Israel became subject to Israel in 841. And this is his reign and, of course, his having to pay tribute to Shalmaneser is also recorded in, in Kings. This is called the Taylor Prism, also called the Sennacherib Prism. There's more than one of these. Uh, this one is also at the British Museum, discovered in 1830, and it records the, the very well-known uh, account in the Old Testament of the siege of Jerusalem during the reign of King Hezekiah. 
And it says, I shut up. So he has a different spin on it. In, in, in the Bible, the Syrian army is destroyed by a plague, not uncommon during those days. Even in uh, the American Civil War, more people died from disease than combat. Um, but anyway, uh, he mentions that he shut up Hezekiah in his city like a bird in a cage. Uh, again, a very early version of political spin. So the list of events during the monarchy for which we have confirmation from non-biblical, non-Israelite sources is staggering. Again, that's like the mountaintop I gave you. And beneath it is is a massive mountain of archaeological evidence. Now, archaeology does not prove, and I'm using the word strongly, that the stories in the Old Testament is true. What they do show is corroborating evidence that whoever is telling this story is getting their historical details correct. What can be said, uh, K.A. Kitchen, in his massive book, this is literally the last couple of paragraphs of his book, what can be said of historical reliability? In terms of general reliability, the Old Testament comes out remarkably well so long as its writing and writers are treated fairly and even-handedly in line with independent data open to all. And so, so the question is, is there enough evidence to say that our faith in the truth of Scripture is reasonable? And the answer overwhelmingly is yes. Thank you very much. Does anybody have any questions? And if it's good enough for him. <laughs> well, that is a factor, it's, it's, but it's, it's not an independent factor. Uh, to me, it's, it's the deciding factor, but it's based on my acceptance of Jesus' lordship, which we haven't gotten to yet. But that is, I think that's legitimate to, to say if Jesus treated uh, stories in the Old Testament as historically true, then so should we. Which is why I do believe, yes, Jonah really was swallowed, swallowed by, might not have been a large fish, but quite possibly could have been a whale, or it could have been a whale shark. Those are technically fish. Uh, there are good reasons. There are a lot of people who are not Christian. Well, of course, when it comes to the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, there are a lot of Jews. There's a, a, a sort of like a scholarly war, even in Israel, between two groups of people, one called minimalist, one called maximalist. Before that uh, David inscription, uh, the minimalists totally deny that David even existed, or if he did exist, he was just some minor little tribal leader. And that inscription, well, they find ways to dismiss it, but it just it made their position complicated, the minimalists. They basically virtually say nothing in the Old Testament has any history in it. But then there are the maximalists, or I... I would prefer to call them the actualists or the realists, but they are called the maximalists who say, no, in general, we can pretty much trust the historical reliability uh, of the accounts in, in, in our Bible, in the Hebrew Bible. Now, this goes on in, in Jewish scholarship and archaeology. It's not just a Christian thing. Any other questions about? Well, thank you. Uh, next week, we'll get to the New Testament. Thank you.